Anybody else working their way in, Brad, or? Okay. Yeah, thanks. That's, uh, that's a noisy machine, isn't it? All right, so welcome on this rainy, rainy day. Um, thank you, Jeffrey, for, yep, we're good, Rick, I think for uh, the last couple of weeks. And um, I think we all know, I, I'm not sure, uh, we've been in the book of Romans, kind of, we jumped in and then we went back and did a reintroduction and then Jeffrey taught for us for a couple of weeks. Um, but what I, what I thought would be good because we've really been out of the text and more into the reintroduction for several weeks as I went back over the notes, it took quite a while to look at the author, look at the city, look at the church, uh, look at the intent of the author. Um, after having spent quite a lot of time in Romans 1, which is an intense passage to begin with. So I thought it would be very helpful to kind of just maybe reconnect ourselves to the flow of Paul's thinking in this book. And, and I think you'll see as we work through this book that, that that is incredibly important. It's particularly important, I find, with the Apostle Paul. And we all know that behind the Apostle Paul in his wonderful mind and the gifts and the experiences as a uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, thrown to the ground, saved, and then really called to be this apostle to... The Gentile, he, you can see he never, ever, ever lost his heart for the Jews. And that's one of the things we observed in the intent of this letter as you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just how wonderful it must have been for him to be able to communicate this glorious future that, that exists for all. And the, the centrality of the, the Jewishness of that future um, as you look into that. But I really wanted to, to, to kind of do a little bit of a refresh and connect from, from Romans 1 into Romans 2 uh, and, and maybe just spend this morning um, drawing our attention to Paul's style of writing in this book. Because I think if you can grasp that style of writing, there'll be triggers as you're reading this book that will cause you to stop and say, therefore what, right? And we're gonna show you one of those, just one of those this morning. We're not gonna get very far, but I really wanna connect Romans 2 and 3a to the Romans 1 study we've already done. Because as you look in the, the first page that I gave you there, uh, says page 92, I, I kind of went through the book several, several times over the course of this study and continue to do that and just enjoy that so much. But between that reading and, and looking at the, the outlines that have been provided by so many uh, faithful men in the study of this book, you know, some contemporaries of ours, some, you know, Stifler 400 years ago who drew, you know, from 300 years prior to him, um, and um, that what you see is kind of an outline uh, that is pretty expansive, but, but you, you clearly see from Romans 1, 1 through 15, uh, it, it's just this beautiful gospel presentation uh, that Paul talks about. And then you have the heart of the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then in Romans 1, 18, it really runs all the way through Romans 3.20. So you really have to kind of lose the chapter breaks and really stay with the flow of the text. And I think you'll see that very clearly. I hope you do. If you don't, let stop me because I've failed miserably to help, help us see that. Because there's a direct transition, an abrupt and significant transition 
from Romans 3.20 to Romans 3.21. And then you move from Romans 3.21 all the way to Romans 5.21. And then there's another significant break in Paul's flow and thinking and, and, and focus of his writing. I think you'll see those uh, if you use this outline and you, you begin reading the book. You'll, you'll see those sections and it will greatly help you go with Paul's thinking right and what he's trying to address one of the one of the things that that is hard about these first three chapters of the book of romans is they're startling in the clarity in which they describe the very times we're living you would almost think that paul wrote this two thousand years ago to describe today what you realize is this is the narrative of the entire history of humanity fallen. And Paul is simply making that abundantly clear to everybody he's writing to because he's writing to the church in Rome. Okay? Do you remember when we talked about who are all the different constituencies of the church in Rome? Everybody. Jew and Gentile. That's everybody. Distinguished, though, right, between Jew and Gentile, matured and not matured. So you had matured Jews in the Christian faith and immatured Jews in the Christian faith. You have matured Gentiles in the Christian faith coming out of paganism. And then you have immatured Gentiles in the Christian faith coming out of paganism. So you have this mixture of Jews who have come out of Judaism and all of its, at that time, legalism on one hand, Commingled with a group of Gentiles who have come out of the most rank paganism you can imagine. And they're all now mingled together and hidden away in Christ. And quite frankly, I think as you read this letter very carefully, there were some issues in this church. That's what I want to make very clear this morning. Because it helps us bookend Paul's writing of this book in, in a wonderful way. One of the startling realities of this passage is the Romans 3, no, not one. Your throat isn't opened, right? It's startling to read that. That's the passage you read and you say, well, I don't know who he's talking about, but that's sure not me or my wife or my children or my, right? Sorry. <laughs> right? Paul draws that from Psalm 14. And I just want to take the time to read that before we pray this morning. Because this is part of what is flowing up out of Paul's mind, moved by the Holy Spirit, as he's writing his conclusion to these first three chapters. You'll recognize some of the Romans 3, 10 through 18, flowing right out of this Psalm 14. Let me just read it for you. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Romans 1, 18. 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. The fool says there is no, in his heart, there is no God. Notice the issue with the heart. They are corrupt they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Sound familiar? This is Paul's whole point of Romans 1, 18 through 320. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. 
For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor. Precious words here. But the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. How precious must it have been for Paul to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen Romans 9, 10, and 11 and to see that unpacked in such beautiful ways. It's exactly the final verse of Psalm 14. It's exactly. Good morning, guys. We're just getting started, so... So, with that in our hearts and minds, let me pray for us. Father, we just come before you, and as I was just thinking and meditating this morning on the way down, that I just pray that our triune God is at work in this room, in this building in the hearts of each and every one of us because apart from our triune God at work in our hearts, there is absolutely nothing of benefit. It just falls off us like arrows in a stone. So we just plea for your blessed work, the illumining work of the Holy Spirit, the stirring of our souls, the convictions of the Holy Spirit, which is a blessing to inform our conscience with the truth of your word. Lord, we just thank you for the community that you have died for. And I pray that as the Apostle Paul so beautifully said, that we would all just be hidden away in you. Lord, we just pray that this time would exalt your holy name and that we would praise you all the more in our community of worship and that we would do this in that precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so, um, yeah, so page one just really is that... Um, view of this book, uh, in my mind, it, it worked very well. We've, we've all, Mark and I have used this book as the Romans wrote in the prison. I have certainly used it um, many times in the discipleship of young men, and um, it is a wonderful book for that. I, I really, it helped me to look at this as one of these bridges, right, that have these multiple arches, and each arch has its own set stone, because each passage that is delineated like I've done here, you will find set stones. You will find significant words that Paul gives us that make that entire section really get set into its context, right? And I've listed those for you. You'll see that a little bit this morning and next Sunday morning, Lord willing. Um, but this is really the general flow that we'll use as we work our way through this book over the next 20 years. Um, Lord willing, as you guys can, can attest, there's just so much. Um, and Paul's heart just explodes with that doxology at the end, right? Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to, listen to how possessive he is, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. That's why Paul's heart just couldn't stop. It was kept secret. And now we know it was Christ on a cross. And this mystery of the church and the church age that we're all a part of. That's what Paul's talking about. He couldn't get over it. And we shouldn't be able to get over it. This is the wonder of God. Redeeming people who are utterly undeserving of that redemption. Let alone the price paid by his beloved son. That's what Paul couldn't get over. You just see it. It was out of his, 
the the way his his the way he starts his letters and the, his doxologies towards the end kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known finally because what was Israel always supposed to do what were they supposed to do with the gospel with the truth with the oracles of God take it to all the nations and what did they do with it turned it all inward and they set up barriers by which anybody could come in. And even the proselytes to Judaism were outcasts, right? You see what they did with it? Is there a warning for the church in there? That we get insulated and we get all cozy here and we forget that our whole purpose is to take this to the nations regardless of how they respond, right? Feel that conviction, <laughs> right? Made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. There it is. To bring about the obedience of faith. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is precisely what Paul does in this book. If you think about it. He's going to show us the condemnation of humanity. He's going to show us the means by which we can be saved. Justification by faith not by works he's then going to show us all the beautiful testimonies of how that faith has worked its way out and then in Romans 6 he's going to show us what it's like to be a Christian and just at times how twisted it seems to be because we still have this flesh and it still seems to have such a great desire to sin against the very Lord who saved us. So Paul unpacks that for us so that we're not surprised by that and that we go to war against that and we're not defeated by that, nor are we complacent with it, right? That is Romans 6 and 7. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I know I should do, wretched man that I am, right? And then we come to Romans 8, and he tells you everything about everything you have in the Holy Spirit to work out your salvation. Because he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. And then he shows us what that completion interim step looks like with the millennial reign. And the complete reversal of the lawlessness that is going to permeate this society. And the righteous rule of Christ and the saints for a thousand years to show us what it was always supposed to look like. And the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, has accomplished. But it is in the tail end after that section that I want us to draw our attention to this morning. Okay? If y'all will hurry up. Go to the back side of your page. And I want to just kind of help you see something that, quite frankly, ha has bothered me a lot as I have studied this Roman ones, and I've heard so many sermons on this and read so many commentaries on it, and there's a sense where in Romans 1, uh, there's this indictment from 18 to 23, and that is very true. And then there's these therefores, God gave them over, 24, 26, and 28. And you get this sense, and it is absolutely true in a societal progression, um, that there's this progression from one to the other to the other. I, I kind of want to challenge that a little bit with all of you this morning and get you to think about it, okay? Because do you think that these perversions are new to our time today? What percentage of this country professes to be of a homosexual persuasion? Poll after poll after poll, maybe 5%, maybe 7%. Although I will tell you, I just read an article this week that a poll of, remember the young teenage girls we talked about? How horrifying that is? One in four today claim to be leaning heavily towards a preference towards a homosexual, lesbian lifestyle. One in four. 
but it is nothing new. I have read the account of the Neros, wicked men. Depending on how you count them, the leaders of Rome, 17 of them, 16 of them were monstrous perverts. I mean like unspeakable perversions. There's nothing new. So it is not as though God gives them over. What's the pronoun? Who, who's them? That's the question I want to raise this morning. Because it becomes very material when you get to our chapter break of chapter 2. Okay? And what I want you to think about is there's this declaration of the universal gospel in Romans 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul, I think, uses the word everyone very deliberately here. Because you have Jews and Gentiles in this church. And I think there's something going on. And I think you will too when we're done this morning. Everyone who believes. And then he makes it very clear. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does he put that in there? Right from the beginning. He draws that line of demarcation, doesn't he? Okay. Part of what I want you to do is don't read an author's book without knowing the author and the way they write. It will dramatically allow you to improve the way you understand their writing. Particularly with Paul, right? Verse 17, for in the right, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul just summarized the first three and a half chapters of this book right there. Okay? And then he jumps right into Romans 118 which is quite startling, but by the time you get to verse 21 and 23, you have what I believe is the first universal judgment. This is humanity. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and here comes the judgment. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Now remember Romans 1.18 and then the two king sins? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Failure to worship God rightly, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve. And a failure to treat one another rightly. Love one another as I have loved you. The two king sins that condemn every one of us, guilty as charged, right? And therefore, Paul rightly concludes in Romans 1.21 that although we knew God, although we've known the commandments, we've known him in our heart, we've seen him in the scriptures, we've seen him in morality, religious morality, right? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, notice the pronouns, them and they, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look at, the, look at where we go. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling everything in the created order. The main secular movement in much of this country, let me call it corporate America, you want to be a good leader? You want to be a good person? You want to be a good this, a good that? You know what you have to do? You have to self-actualize. You've got to find yourself, your inner core, and then you've got to unleash it. And I'm thinking, uh, Adolf Hitler did that pretty well, didn't he? Mussolini did that pretty well, didn't he? And the list goes on and on and on. Don't, don't buy this self-actualized nonsense if it's not grounded in Scripture. You're listening to a fool who has a darkened heart and on his way towards a debased mind. On his way to a debased mind. That's the point I want to make, right? So we see this universal 
judgment of all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, and that is very specific for Paul. Very intentional. But now you see these three progressive judgments. And let me just float this with you guys. That are the mark of a society that has been given over by God. You want to know how a society has been given over by God? You're going to see manifestations of all three of these. Not entirely, not completely you're going to see manifestations of all three of these. Now, think about the times we're living in, because it's very real to us. And tell me, we don't see the very first mark. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Right back up to Romans 121, because they did not honor him as God. And then you have the next for this reason. So is the, here's the question. Is the this reason what is in verse 24 and 25? Or is the this reason pointing back to Romans 21? Because here comes the next mark of society. Because clearly not everyone in an abandoned society becomes homosexual. But it is a mark of a society that has been abandoned by God. And here comes the next wave. For this reason, God gave them up. Sorry, verse 24 and 25 is the immoral. 26 and 7 is the homosexual, the next mark of that society. I got ahead of myself. Let me ask you a very difficult question. If you think about the holiness of God and the purity that he demands of our marriage covenants, how immoral are we as a society? Ever think about that? It kind of throws you right out of your shoes and makes you think about how a holy God sees the immorality when it has permeated children in the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade because they can't even go to the shopping mall now without merchandising themselves and the way they dress. Think about the immorality that is permeating society today. Think about the fact that there are very few people who ever reach the marriage covenant celibate. That one is almost universal today. I would argue it would be hard to imagine it not being universal. The nuns and the monks tried it real hard, and look what it did there. So that, that Romans 24 and 25 is certainly a mark of society, but it is a sweep of society, certainly in our country. 26 and 27 is another mark, which is the, the homosexual, right? The men on men, the women, right? All doing things that should not even be talked about, right? And in them is the due penalty of their error, the disease that comes with it. We've talked about this painfully. But this one is one that is a mark of society, which is an utter perversion of the human relationship between a man and a woman. And when you see that, even in its hidden way, it's a woe. In the open way that it is carried on today, it is a mark, not at the beginning, but deep into the abandoning wrath of God. And then you have the third manifestation, or the third mark, which is Romans 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and that gives you a pretty good clue that he's pointing us back to Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Here comes the next mark of that society to look for. And God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, not malice. And on it goes. Long list, right? And you come to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die... 
They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see that? We've talked about this is the mark of our society. That you could look at the lives and the lifestyle that we learned several weeks ago and the absolute destruction of those human beings because of that lifestyle. And you could exalt it to a point where you are absolutely segregated out for not being honest about it. You have a society that is not being poured out. <laughs> you have a society that is deep in the abandoning mind of a debased human being. Okay? We've studied this a lot. I just wanted to kind of get us back into the intensity at which Paul starts this book to this beloved church in Rome. Why would he start there? Right? Look at Romans 2, 1 through 5, and we'll start to unpack that question a little bit. First thing I want you to notice about Paul's writing here, what happens to the pronouns? Exactly. That kind of hit me. I mean, how many times have we read the book of Romans? And he goes from they and them and they and them and they and them to you. He just brings it right here. It's what he's doing. Beautiful picture of how Paul writes. Right? He lets the condemnation come general, <laughs> and then he brings it right, right to you. Now, what's he going to have to say about each one of us? Right? Therefore, you have uh, that bad childhood. Maybe those parents that weren't Christians. Maybe that town you lived in, that drug addict brother that you had. No. No excuse. Oh, man, every one of you, now he introduces a new thought. Who what? Judges, conviction, alert. Can we all say amen? How much we struggle with this? How embedded is it in our flesh, in that sinful flesh, to say, even whisper, boy, I'm glad I'm not. Fill in the blank, fill in the name. But that's what he's talking about here. Very convicting. It should be very, very convicting. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Why, why does he say that here? Because everything he just unpacked for us in Romans 1, 18 through 32 is in some form or some fashion true of us. Just look at the list from Romans 1, 28 through 31. And don't tell me we haven't been deceitful. Don't tell me we haven't acted with an intent to do harm over the course of our life, right? I mean, that list is just a punch list of conviction. And that's his point. You, you better step back from your judgment because you are guilty of the exact same things. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, practice becomes a very important word here in the disruption of the patterns of sin in the heart of an unredeemed person when they are redeemed. It's one of the true marks of the the, the work of the Holy Spirit that we all ought to be able to identify. At some point, the pattern of sin that we were so perfectly comfortable living in became very disrupted. Right? Like a splinter in your sock or your boot. And it just keeps jabbing you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit 
who has taken what you once loved and were passionate about and helped you realize through the scripture that this is enmity with a holy God and we are to go to war with it. And it is a war until the very day you die. Which is where Paul's trying to help us see. Because he's singling out a you, O man, here. And what I couldn't stop thinking about as I read that text and it kind of hit me new this week was, who is the you specifically? Is it just a general you? Because who's he writing this letter to? The church in Rome. That, that kind of haunted me in a good way. And you go and you read the entire book. And in the case of Romans, it's a pretty lengthy read. But you go and you read the entire book with that question in your mind. And I'll show you where that took us. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? There's a warning. Your self-righteous religion is condemning you all the more. If that is, in fact, the dominant pattern you are using a scale to put in front of God. When God says, no, not one of you, that's his point, right? Or, verse 4, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, here comes a beautiful insight in our evangelism, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why does the rain fall on the wicked and the righteous? The sun shine? It's the tender mercies of God that is to be a means by which we evangelize the lost, to show them the tender mercies of God. And if the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of that individual through the conviction and probably the destruction of their life, there is no more beautiful thing to see than the face of that individual as they begin to hear and understand the tender mercies of God. There is no greater joy to the Christian than to be able to witness that, right? Here comes the but. Paul uses the but a lot. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is the transition into Romans chapter 2. But it is a complete train of thought for Paul. It is uh, Peter said, Paul's writing is kind of complicated. Paul had an incredibly complex way of thinking. It was what I would describe as a causal mind. He writes, and a thought explodes, and then he unpacks that thought, and then he comes back to the thought that exploded, and then he goes and writes, and then he says, and it, you'll see it in his therefores, in his buts. you got to go backwards because he just unpacked a big thought for you, and now he's going to come back to the next thought. And he does that all the way through this book. And it is a wonderful way to read it, but it is one that takes a lot of time and patience to thread that through. But I think you'll see some of that. Um, look at Romans two seventeen through 21 in your Bible now. It's not on your sheet. Because... And we're going to unpack all this in more detail, but I want to just give, the, give this outline of this section of Romans 1.18 through 3.20 with just a few of these set stone passages. Romans 2.17 through 21 gives us a little bit of insight because now he goes from you to, but if you call yourself a what? 
Jew. So he's either singling out the Jewish nation here, or he's singling out Jews in the church at Rome. And at this point, you don't know. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and, you, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, so that implies a teacher, a light to those who are in darkness, an evangelist, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? He's talking very personally to somebody, isn't he? Do you not teach them yourself? Would he write it this way if he was just writing generically of the Jewish nation when he's writing the letter to the believers or the community of the Church of Rome? You kind of have to wonder, right? Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you not steal? And he goes on to a whole another set and then go to 229. We're just going to skip along the set stones here. But a Jew, 229, is one inwardly. just not right. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. He says, I don't care what you call yourself or what you pretend to be. God's dealt with the heart, not all your fancy titles for who you think you are. Does your heart belong to the Lord? Because we can masquerade masterfully. Judas, did anybody know at that table that night? No, not a single person but the Lord himself. <laughs> Masterful deceiver. Matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Hidden away in Christ is what I always like to think about. Romans 3.9, as we step into Romans 3. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And that's his point of Romans 1, 18-32. And he puts a big exclamation point on it. In this very next passage, Romans 3, 19 through 20, after he goes through that entire condemnation that is drawn right from Psalm 14, he says this to transition out of this section. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. If you're using a scale of righteousness, you need to shut your mouth because you don't know the Lord and his gospel at all is what he's saying. Why? For by the works of the law, no human being, and here comes the step into the next section, justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Galatians 3.24. For the law was the teacher, tutor, depending on the translation you've got, to bring me to Christ. And in Christ, I find grace to receive what I never could have ever deserved. And it was not because of any works. Now, the question still hangs out there, though, okay? So quickly go with me. To Romans 13. And look at verse 11 on this question when he moves from the very generic they and thems to the you and then the Jew. 
And remember, he's writing to the church in Rome. Look at Romans 13, verse 11. I'm going to kind of read this fast so we can really wind it down here. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That is everything he unpacked in Romans 6 and 7. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. You think that wasn't as common then as it was now? He's telling these people in Rome, the church of Rome, to get out of those lifestyles. Kill those patterns of sin in your life. You think we're not going to struggle with sin? You're not reading the Bible and understanding it. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for that flesh to gratify its desires. There's the war. Verse four, or chapter 14. Here's where I think we begin to see the trouble in the church and why Paul wrote this letter. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the other who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And God has welcomed him. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? There it is. Who are you, O man? Romans 2, 1, to pass judgment. You see what's going on? Um, look at verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, then he might be, that he might be both Lord, Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Here comes the pointed question. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? There's the problem. Right? Isn't it wonderful that this isn't a problem in the church today? Right? You see how serious this was right at the beginning? This is the beloved church of Rome. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Confess what? It was always you, Lord. Take this crown and keep it. It was always your. You were always the one behind all those Ephesians 2.10 moments. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which they prepared beforehand. Right? Just an indictment, but let's look at verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of God, him, of himself, to God. Last verse, and then we'll end. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And I, how many... Weak and struggling saints are we willing to just write off because we don't have time to disciple one another into these deep truths that Paul unpacks from Romans 3 through Romans 8. That kind of discipleship takes weeks and months and lifetimes 
right. We'll end at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Be careful of the conscience of your brother or your sister. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one who, for whom Christ died. You hear the passion of Paul on this topic? So what he does between that bookend and the Romans 1 bookend, or really the Romans 1, 16 and 17, is he unpacks that none of us should even dare open our mouth that we are saved by justification by faith unto a faith and a cloud of witnesses that are to disciple us. And that discipleship looks like Romans 6 and 7. And the glorious power that you have from Romans 16, Romans 1, 16 and 70 is all of Romans 8 and the blessed work of the Holy Spirit and the promises that are yet to come. Because that's going to put you in a reign with Christ that will be like nothing we've ever seen on this planet since Genesis 3. And then he calls the church to be the church and to love one another in a way that, frankly, we, we need a wake-up call, which is exactly what he says. What? Wake up from your stupor, <laughs> folks. Christ died for these people. They're struggling help them, disciple them, come alongside of them. And you just can't help but wonder, did someone through the chain of communication or a letter get to Paul about what was going on in this church? Or did the Holy Spirit move him to know that this is going on not only in the church of Rome, but in every church where there are human beings, right? So there's our transition introduction. And